Chapter 2.2 of the 9-11 Commission Report This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Christopher The 9-11 Commission Report Chapter 2.2 Bin Laden's Appeal in the Islamic World It is the story of eccentric and violent ideas sprouting in the fertile ground of political and social turmoil. It is the story of an organization poised to seize its historical moment. How did Bin Laden, with his call for the indiscriminate killing of Americans, win thousands of followers and some degree of approval from millions more? The history, culture, and body of beliefs from which Bin Laden has shaped and spread his message are largely unknown to many Americans. Seizing on symbols of Islam's past greatness, he promises to restore pride to people who consider themselves the victims of successive foreign masters. He uses cultural and religious allusions to the Holy Koran and some of its interpreters. He appeals to people disoriented by cyclonic change as they confront modernity and globalization. His rhetoric selectively draws from multiple sources, Islam, history, and the region's political and economic malaise. He also stresses grievances against the United States widely shared in the Muslim world. He invited against the presence of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia, the home of Islam's holiest sites. He spoke of the suffering of the Iraqi people as a result of sanctions imposed after the Gulf War, and he protested U.S. support of Israel. Islam Islam, a word that literally means surrender to the will of God, arose in Arabia with what Muslims believe are a series of revelations to the Prophet Muhammad from the one and only God, the God of Abraham and of Jesus. These revelations, conveyed by the angel Gabriel, are recorded in the Quran. Muslims believe that these revelations, given to the greatest and last of a chain of prophets stretching from Abraham through Jesus, completes God's message to humanity. The Hadith, which recount Muhammad's sayings and deeds as recorded by his contemporaries, are another fundamental source. A third key element is the Sharia, a code of law derived from the Quran and the Hadith. Islam is divided into two branches, Sunni and Shia. Soon after the Prophet's death, the question of choosing a new leader, or Caliph, for the Muslim community, or Ummah, arose. Initially, his successors could be drawn from the Prophet's contemporaries, but with time this was no longer possible. Those who became the Shia held that any leader of the Ummah must be a direct descendant of the Prophet. Those who became Sunni argued that lineal descent was not required if the candidate met other standards of faith and knowledge. After bloody struggles, the Sunni became and remained the majority sect. The Shia are dominant in Iran. The Caliphate, the institutionalized leadership of the Ummah, thus was a Sunni institution that continued until 1924, first under Arab and eventually under Ottoman Turkish control. Many Muslims look back at the century after the revelations to the Prophet Muhammad as a golden age. Its memory is strongest among the Arabs. What happened then, the spread of Islam from the Arabian Peninsula throughout the Middle East, North Africa, and even into Europe, within less than a century, seemed and seems miraculous. Nostalgia for Islam's past glory remains a powerful force. Islam is both a faith and a code of conduct for all aspects of life. For many Muslims, a good government would be one guided by the moral principles of their faith. This does not necessarily translate into a desire for clerical rule and the abolition of a secular state. It does mean that some Muslims tend to be uncomfortable with distinctions between religion and state though Muslim rulers throughout history have readily separated the two. To extremists, however, such divisions, as well as the existence of parliaments and legislation, 
only prove these rulers to be false Muslims usurping God's authority over all aspects of life. Periodically, the Islamic world has seen surges of what, for want of a better term, is often labeled fundamentalism. Denouncing waywardness among the faithful, some clerics have appealed for a return to observance of the literal teachings of the Quran and the Hadith. One scholar from the 14th century, from whom bin Laden selectively quotes, Ibn Tamiyyah, condemned both corrupt rulers and the clerics who failed to criticize them. He urged Muslims to read the Quran and the Hadith for themselves, not depend solely on learned interpreters like himself, but to hold one another to account for the quality of their observance. The extreme Islamic version of history blames the decline from Islam's golden age on the rulers and people who turned away from the true path of their religion, thereby leaving Islam vulnerable to encroaching foreign powers eager to steal their land, wealth, and even their souls. Bin Laden's Worldview Despite his claims to universal leadership, Bin Laden offers an extreme view of Islamic history designed to appeal mainly to Arabs and Sunnis. He draws on fundamentalists who blame the eventual destruction of the caliphate on leaders who abandoned the pure path of religious devotion. He repeatedly calls on his followers to embrace martyrdom, since the walls of oppression and humiliation cannot be demolished except in a rain of bullets. For those yearning for a lost sense of order in an older, more tranquil world, he offers his caliphate as an imagined alternative to today's uncertainty. For others, he offers simplistic conspiracies to explain their world. Bin Laden also relies heavily on the Egyptian writer Saeed Qutb. A member of the Muslim Brotherhood, executed in 1966 on charges of attempting to overthrow the government, Qutb mixed Islamic scholarship with a very superficial acquaintance with Western history and thought. Sent by the Egyptian government to study in the United States in the late 1940s, Qutb returned with an enormous loathing of Western society and history. He dismissed Western achievements as entirely material, arguing that Western society possesses nothing that will satisfy its own conscience and justify its existence. Three basic themes emerge from Qutb's writing. First, he claimed that the world was beset with barbarism, licentiousness, and unbelief, a condition he called jahiliya, the religious term for the period of ignorance prior to the revelations given to the Prophet Muhammad. Qutb argued that humans can choose only between Islam and jahiliya. Second, he warned that more people, including Muslims, were attracted to Jahiliya and its material comforts than to his view of Islam. Jahiliya could therefore triumph over Islam. Third, no middle ground exists in what Qutb conceived as a struggle between God and Satan. All Muslims, as he defined them, therefore, must take up arms in this fight. Any Muslim who rejects his ideas is just one more non-believer worthy of destruction. Bin Laden shares Qutb's stark view permitting him and his followers to rationalize even unprovoked mass murder as righteous defense of an embattled faith. Many Americans have wondered, why do they hate us? Some also ask, what can we do to stop these attacks? Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda have given answers to both these questions. To the first they say that Americans had attacked Islam. America is responsible for all conflicts involving Muslims. Thus Americans are blamed when Israelis fight with Palestinians, when Russians fight with Chechnyans, when Indians fight with Kashmiri Muslims, and when the Philippine government fights ethnic Muslims in its southern islands. America is also held responsible for the governments of Muslim countries, derided by Al-Qaeda, as your agents. Bin Laden has stated flatly, our fight against these governments is not separate from our fight against you. These charges found a ready audience among millions of Arabs and Muslims, angry at the United States because of issues ranging from Iraq to Palestine, to America's support for their country's repressive rulers. 
Bin Laden's grievance with the United States may have started in reaction to specific U.S. policies, but it quickly became far deeper. To the second question, what America could do, Al-Qaeda's answer was that America should abandon the Middle East, convert to Islam, and end the immorality and godlessness of its society and culture. It is saddening to tell you that you are the worst civilization witnessed by the history of mankind. If the United States did not comply, it would be at war with the Islamic nation, a nation that Al-Qaeda's leader said desires death more than you desire life. Historical and Political Context Few fundamentalist movements in the Islamic world gained lasting political power. In the 19th and 20th centuries, fundamentalists helped articulate anti-colonial grievances, but played little role in the overwhelmingly secular struggles for independence after World War I. Western-educated lawyers, soldiers, and officers led most independence movements, and clerical influence and traditional culture were seen as obstacles to national progress. After gaining independence from Western powers following World War II, the Arab Middle East followed an arc from initial pride and optimism to today's mix of indifference, cynicism, and despair. In several countries, a dynastic state already existed or was quickly established under a paramount tribal family. Monarchies in countries such as Saudi Arabia, Morocco, and Jordan still survive today. Those in Egypt, Libya, Iraq, and Yemen were eventually overthrown by secular nationalist revolutionaries. The secular regimes promised a glowing future, often tied to sweeping ideologies, such as those promoted by Egyptian President Gamil Abdel Nasser's Arab Socialism, or the Ba'ath Party of Syria and Iraq, that call for a single secular Arab state. However, what emerged were almost invariably autocratic regimes that were usually unwilling to tolerate any opposition, even in countries such as Egypt that had a parliamentary tradition. Over time, their policies, repression, rewards, immigration, and the displacement of popular anger into scapegoats, generally foreign, were shaped by the desire to cling to power. The bankruptcy of secular autocratic nationalism was evident across the Muslim world by the late 1970s. At the same time, these regimes had closed off nearly all paths for peaceful opposition, forcing their critics to choose silence, exile, or violent opposition. Iran's 1979 revolution swept the Shia theocracy into power. Its success encouraged Sunni fundamentalists elsewhere. In the 1980s, awash in sudden oil wealth, Saudi Arabia competed with Shia Iran to promote its Sunni fundamentalist interpretation of Islam, Wahhabism. The Saudi government, always conscious of its duties as a custodian of Islam's holiest places, joined with wealthy Arabs from the kingdom and other states bordering the Persian Gulf in donating money to build mosques and religious schools that could preach and teach their interpretation of Islamic doctrine. In this competition for legitimacy, secular regimes had no alternative to offer. Instead, in a number of cases, their rulers sought to buy off local Islamist movements by ceding control of many social and educational issues. Emboldened rather than satisfied, the Islamists continued to push for power, a trend especially clear in Egypt. Confronted with a violent Islamist movement that killed President Anwar Sadat in 1981, the Egyptian government combined harsh repression of Islamic militants with harassment of modern Islamic scholars and authors, driving many into exile. In Pakistan, a military regime sought to justify its seizure of power by a pious public stance and an embrace of unprecedented Islamic influence on education and society. These experiments in political Islam faltered during the 1990s. The Iranian Revolution lost momentum, prestige, and public support, and Pakistan's rulers found that most of its population had little enthusiasm for fundamentalist Islam. Islamist revival movements gained followers across the Muslim world, but failed to secure political power except in Iran and Sudan. In Algeria, 
where in 1991 Islamists seemed almost certain to win power through the ballot box, the military preempted their victory, triggering a brutal civil war that continues today. Opponents of today's rulers have few, if any, ways to participate in the existing political system. They are thus a ready audience for calls to Muslims to purify their society, reject unwelcome modernization, and adhere strictly to the Sharia. Social and Economic Malaise In the 1970s and early 1980s, an unprecedented flood of wealth led the then largely unmodernized oil states to attempt to shortcut decades of development. They funded huge infrastructure projects, vastly expanded education, and created subsidized social welfare programs. These programs established a widespread feeling of entitlement without a corresponding sense of social obligation. By the late 1980s, diminishing oil revenues, the economic drain from many unprofitable development projects, and population growth made these entitlement programs unsustainable. The resulting cutbacks created enormous resentment among recipients who had come to see government largesse as their right. This resentment was further stoked by public understanding of how much oil income had gone directly into the pockets of the rulers, their friends, and their helpers. Unlike the oil states, or Afghanistan, where real economic development has barely begun, the other Arab states and Pakistan once had seemed headed towards balanced modernization. The established commercial, financial, and industrial sectors in these states, supported by an entrepreneurial spirit and widespread understanding of free enterprise, augured well. But unprofitable heavy industry, state monopolies, and opaque bureaucracies slowly stifled growth. More importantly, these state-centered regimes placed their highest priority on preserving the elite's grip on national wealth. Unwilling to foster dynamic economies that could create jobs attractive to educated young men, the countries became economically stagnant and reliant on the safety valve of worker emigration either to the Arab oil states or to the West. Furthermore, the repression and isolation of women in many Muslim countries have not only seriously limited individual opportunity, but also crippled overall economic productivity. By the 1990s, high birth rates and declining rates of infant mortality had produced a common problem throughout the Muslim world. A large, steadily increasing population of young men without any reasonable expectation of suitable or steady employment. A sure prescription for social turbulence. Many of these young men, such as the enormous number trained only in religious schools, lacked the skills needed by their societies. Far more acquired valuable skills, but lived in stagnant economies that could not generate satisfying jobs. Millions, pursuing secular as well as religious studies, were products of educational systems that generally devoted little, if any, attention to the rest of the world's thought, history, and culture. The secular education reflected a strong cultural preference for technical fields over the humanities and social sciences. Many of these young men, even if able to study abroad, lacked the perspective and skills needed to understand a different culture. Frustrated in their search for a decent living, unable to benefit from an education often obtained at the cost of great family sacrifice, and blocked from starting families of their own, some of these young men were easy targets for radicalization. Bin Laden's Historical Opportunity Most Muslims prefer a peaceful and inclusive vision of their faith, not the violent sectarianism of Bin Laden. Among Arabs, Bin Laden's followers are commonly nicknamed Takfiri, or those who define other Muslims as unbelievers because of their readiness to demonize and murder those with whom they disagree. Beyond the theology lies the simple human fact that most Muslims, like most other human beings, are repelled by mass murder and barbarism, whatever their justification. All Americans must recognize that the face of terror is not the true face of Islam, President Bush observed. Islam is a faith that brings comfort to billions of people around the world. It's a faith that has made brothers and sisters of every race. It's a faith based on love, not hate. 
Yet, as political, social, and economic problems create flammable societies, Bin Laden used Islam's most extremist fundamentalist traditions as his match. All these elements, including religion, combined in an explosive compound. Other extremists had, and have, followings of their own. But, in appealing to societies full of discontent, Bin Laden remained credible as other leaders and symbols failed. He could stand as a symbol of resistance, above all, resistance to the West and to America. He could present himself and his allies as victorious warriors in the one great successful experience for Islamic militancy in the 1980s, the Afghan Jihad against the Soviet occupation. By 1998, Bin Laden had a distinctive appeal, as he focused on attacking America. He argued that other extremists who aimed at local rulers or Israel did not go far enough. They had not taken on what he called the head of the snake. Finally, Bin Laden had another advantage, a substantial worldwide organization. By the time he issued his February 1998 declaration of war, Bin Laden had nurtured that organization for nearly 10 years. He could attract, train, and use recruits for ever more ambitious attacks, rallying new adherents with each demonstration that his was the movement of the future. End of chapter 2.2